Uh, so th- this morning we're going to be uh, going through Leviticus chapter 16. It'll be our last uh, uh, sermon in the book of Leviticus for our church, at least for the time being, as far as we're all aware. Uh, and it is on the Day of Atonement, um, one of the most significant days in the life and calendar of the nation of Israel. Uh, and to give you a little bit of context for those who were not here, or perhaps to refresh your memory, we've seen through the book of uh, Leviticus, the first seven chapters were laws about certain offerings that were meant to be given to the Lord, uh, depending on different circumstances or different occasions that, they were, uh, that, that brought them up. Chapter 8 was uh, the ordination of the priests and how that was supposed to be done as they prepared for work in the tent of meeting. Uh, and chapter 9, uh, sorry, I'm doing this all from memory. I think it's the same. <laughs> I think they're both on ordination, those two. Uh, and then chapter 10, we have the story of uh, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, who actually offered up strange fire or unauthorized fire to the Lord in the tent of meeting and were consumed by fire. And uh, the Lord gave instructions about what to do after that and how they were to uh, deal with that circumstance. And in that chapter, the Lord gives an instruction to all of the priests that they are to discern uh, what between the clean and the unclean, to discern between uh, the uh, what is um, uh, holy and unholy. And so then we see from chapters 11 through to chapter 15, various laws about how the priests are to make this discernment, what is clean and what is unclean in various areas of life. And so you might remember chapter 11 was when uh, uh, there were laws about animals and which animals they were allowed to eat, which were considered clean or unclean, as well as what they were to do if they were to touch a deceased animal. Uh, And then chapter 12 was laws about childbirth and how a woman was to remain clean after she gave birth to a child. Chapters 13 and 14 were about skin diseases, and then chapter 15 was all about bodily discharges. We looked at that last week. And so now, after all of that, we come to uh, this chapter, chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement. That's what we're going to be looking at in a moment, and Yared's going to read the chapter to us. So as we prepare to hear from God's Word and to hear it proclaimed, uh, let me pray as we prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for these wonderful truths that we have just sung. The amazing love that you have shown us in Jesus, that uh, he is the one through whom his, uh, his blood has atoned for our sin, so that we might have a way to come to you, to stand before you. Father, may those truths forever be on our hearts and be causes, occasions for praise, celebration, and glorifying you. Heavenly Father, we thank you also for the book of Leviticus, a book that for many of us here today is often difficult to understand and carries many obscure uh, laws and, and tales and, and cultural contexts that we are just not familiar with. Father, we thank you that over the last few months we've been able to explore this part of your very word and seek to understand it better and seek to see how it applies to our lives and seek to live uh, in faithful, loving obedience of you uh, as we uh, uh, discover all that you have to say to us through it. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to chapter 16 this morning of the book of Leviticus, may your spirit be at work in our hearts. May we not uh, uh, simply uh, think of these things as an exercise in uh, seeking to understand or, or know things, though it certainly is that. 
But God, may you work in us that, that we might expand in our hearts, in our love for you, in our love for our neighbors, in our desire to be consecrated, to be holy, holy, to be set apart for you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Leviticus chapter 16. If you've got a blue Bible around you, it's on page 55. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one home. It's our gift to you. Um, There's 34 verses in chapter 16, so strap in. All right, the Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, do not come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. With a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, he shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die." And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their unclean, uncleannesses. uncleannesses. No, one, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. 
And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the unclean, uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offerings of the people and make atonement for himself and for, people, and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. How big of a problem is sin? Well, to sharpen the question, how big of a problem is your sin? Perhaps your instinct uh, in response to that is, oh, here we go again. Christians always love to talk about sin. Why can't we just you know, move on to the, the, the happier parts of Christian? life. Or perhaps you're one of those people who've uh, experienced such guilt in your life that you feel like no amount of good works or washing could ever cleanse you of it. Sometimes you wonder, when will I be guilt-free? Well, the reason we talk about sin so much as Christians is because it really is a big problem. And it's not just a big problem, it is the big problem. 
I remember a, uh, a, an Instagram account that I follow that had some merchandise selling hoodies, which just had in big words, sin is the problem. In case you want to billboard that to the rest of the world. But despite the bigness of the problem of sin, we praise God because the solution is even bigger. Chapter 16 of Leviticus highlights for us just how big the problem of sin truly is. It is considered by many to be the pinnacle of the Pentateuch, the climax of the first five books of the Bible. And the wondrous thing about this is that it doesn't just highlight the bigness of the problem, but also the biggerness of the solution. So we're going to consider it through three headings this morning. Firstly, sin atoned for. Secondly, sin taken away. And thirdly, salvation remembered forever. Sin atoned for, sin taken away, salvation remembered forever. Let's take it all in, begin at our first heading. Let me encourage you to have your Bibles open. As Yara mentioned before, it's a long chapter. I'm not going to be working through it verse by verse, so it'll be good to follow along if you can. But otherwise, there will be verses up on the screen as I work through. So number one, sin atoned for. Well, let me ask you this morning, which day of the year do you think is the biggest day that our nation celebrates and remembers? Oh, Saturday. Oh, Sunday. Right, right, Sunday. Our nation, I mean, like, not, not just us as Christians or our church, but our whole country. Christmas. All right, well, there's one suggestion, perhaps Christmas, which is tomorrow. Uh, maybe Australia Day. Uh, Certainly some parts of the country would not say that. Others, like WA, I was in WA on Australia Day one time, there were Australian flags everywhere. Or maybe Anzac Day, with our uh, dawn services and our parades. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I reckon Australians, especially compared to some other countries, we're not particularly patriotic. We don't really love things like that. You know, not like Independence Day, for example, in America, which is just a massive deal. I personally can't think of a national holiday or national celebration where the whole nation just really gets on board. Well, this day, the Day of Atonement, was a very significant one in the life of ancient Israel. And probably the most solemn and most significant. Later on in the book, in chapter 23, verse 27, it is actually called the Day of Atonement. Uh, but we don't have that, it's, it's not used, that term is not used in our chapter this morning. But for good reason, I think it is named that. And that's because on this day there was an elaborate ceremony which was carried out by the priests on behalf of the people. And more specifically, the high priest. And the people, as we'll see later, they also were to remember the day in certain ways. And, and it's called the Day of Atonement because all of that ceremony, all of everything that was done on this day was for the purpose of atoning for sin. And the chapter's structure can be a little bit confusing, so allow me to break it down for you here. So in verse 1, we see an introduction and the occasion for the day. And then in verses 2 to 5, we see the purpose for the day as well as preparation for it. And then in verses 6 to 10, there's a summary of the ceremony that was to be seen. And then in, in verses 11 to 28, some more detail of that summary. And then finally in verses 29 to 34, instructions for the whole nation of Israel. 
Now, the whole focus of chapter 16 is this day, the day of atonement. And each of these sections is important, but the centerpiece of the day really was the ceremony. The centerpiece was uh, that, that sections that we get between verses 6 and 28. So all that Aaron as the high priest had to do on this day. And so the ceremony, to, to break it down even further, had four main parts to it. There was a sin offering, which involved a bull, for Aaron and the priests. And then there was a sin offering, which involved the go- a goat for the people. And then there was a scapegoat for the people being sent into the wilderness. And then finally, there was a burnt offering uh, of a ram on behalf of the people, as well as the priests. Now, parts two and three together make really one part, uh, but we'll get to that later. Now, there's, there's other stuff in this chapter. There's instructions for washings and things like that, which we'll get to. But these are the key parts of the Day of Atonement. This ceremony that we see uh, is the centerpiece of it. So without further ado, let us ascend the mountain of one of the great high peaks in the Holy Scripture. Now, the first thing to note comes from verse 1. Let's read. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, we've had a number of weeks uh, now since chapter 10 uh, because we've had four sermons in between on chapters 11 to 15. But this opening verse calls us back to the events of chapter 10. As we saw then, and as you can see in, in verses 1 to 2, Nadab and Abihu are consumed by fire before the Lord because they offered unauthorized fire or strange fire, fire that was not approved by God. And so verse 1 of chapter 16 tells us that Leviticus uh, is, is connecting these two events together. And it also tells us, as we read, that, that the book is actually more concerned about recording history than it is about publishing a manual on tabernacle worship. That the instructions for the Day of Atonement that we read about in this chapter, they are located in a historical event that rocked the nation. You might remember, as we preached over the last few weeks, as you think about the, the unclean laws that the Lord gave to the people, they would have continued to have in the back of their minds this event that had just happened These two sons of Aaron, important men, were consumed by fire. And this verse also gives us a bit of a hint as to why perhaps these sons of Aaron uh, were consumed, why their fire was unauthorized. It says in verse 1 that when they drew near before the Lord. And so given that most of this chapter is going to be dedicated to Aaron entering the most holy place, and given the warning that we see in verse 2, then it's, it's possible, perhaps even probable, that one of the things that these men tried to do was enter the most holy place and tried to do so in a way that was unauthorized. And so if that's the case, well, verse 2 makes even more sense. Let's read. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now you might remember the picture I showed a number of weeks ago of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting as it's sometimes called and how it was divided into two sections. Well, here it is again. Here's a picture of it, an artist's rendition, 
We don't know for sure what it looked like. But that's the tabernacle, also known as the tent of meeting. And that first room, as you can see, with the menorah and the altar of incense and the, and the table with the bread, is called the holy place. And then separating that from the, the further chamber is a veil or a curtain. And then that place with the Ark of the Covenant was called the most holy place. Uh, our chapter in chapter 16 doesn't use that term. Uh, though we do find it in other parts of Scripture. But we know that this is what the Lord is talking about because he says the holy place inside the veil. And so on the other side of the curtain, inside that. And you can hear in the Lord's instructions in in verse 1 just how serious this was. Throughout Scripture, there is a very clear understanding that those who see God, unless he shows them mercy... Do not live. And perhaps the clearest example of this is found in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, where he says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And of course, we see that on Mount Sinai as well, and in several other parts of the book of Exodus. And on top of that, the Lord often appears in a cloud. And so the Lord's instructions here to Moses and Aaron are quite consistent with everything that we've seen in in previous books. His presence is often manifest in a cloud, and those who see him will die. Well, this is hardly surprising for us. We've seen in every chapter right up until this one how God's holiness demands that God's people be holy, that they must be consecrated, set apart for him. And we also see how, have seen how sin brings the fire of judgment. So Aaron, this instruction, or, or anyone, they cannot enter the most holy place because God will appear there and no one who sees him will live. Instead, the Lord gives him instructions on how he is to enter the most holy place. He begins with a a bull and a ram for a a sin offering and a burnt offering. And then we see in verse 4 that he's to take off his usual priestly garments, which were ornate and beautiful, to put on much humbler clothing, just plain linen garments. And he was also to bathe in water, which again we saw in previous chapters of, of one way of people becoming ceremonially clean. And finally, he is also to offer two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So right from the beginning of this chapter, in these first five verses, we already know that the Day of Atonement is no small deal. There is a lot of preparation that goes in for the day. And that's just the preparation. Now kids, uh, you can tell the difference between a casual instruction from your parents and a more serious one, can't you? Right? There's a big difference between go and brush your teeth and stop, don't go on the road. Right? You know the difference between those two things. At least I hope you do, because you really need to stop if they say that. Right? Well, the instructions that the Lord is giving Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel here are of that latter variety. He's saying, do not come into the most holy place the wrong way or you will die.
It's at this point that it's worth reminding us yet again of the big story of Leviticus and indeed of the whole Pentateuch of the first five chapter, books of the Bible. Now, kids, do you remember what creatures were woven into the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place? It's kind of hard, a bit hard to see on, on that picture, but yeah. Cherubim, that's right. There were cherubim woven into the veil. And as we saw, we saw many weeks ago now, the last time that we see cherubim in the Bible is at the end of Genesis chapter 3. And after Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, remember the cherubim are the ones who guarded the entry. And the entry to the Garden of Eden faced east, just as the tent of meeting does. And that will become important later. And so as we've seen all along, Leviticus is the story of how God's people may enter back into God's presence. Humanity was cast out of the garden to the east of Eden. And the story of the Pentateuch is one of how the people may come back in to the place where God is. And so the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was like a small version of that bigger story. Now, verses 3 to 5 tell us how Aaron was to prepare. And in verses 6 to 10, we have a summary of the instructions found in verses 11 to 22. Now, you might have been confused by the fact that verses 6 and 11 are almost identical. I know that I certainly was when I first read it. Oh, the reason they are is because, as I said, there's a summary in verses 6 to 10, and then 11 to 22 give us greater detail. Now, the only thing mentioned in the summary that is not repeated in the details is how the two goats are chosen. And we read about that in verses 7 and 8, which says, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, these days we don't cast lots for things and for good reason. Other than when the apostles chose between Joseph and Matthias to replace Judas, there's no account or instruction to cast lots in the New Testament. But here, this was done because firstly, the Lord instructed it. But also secondly, they understood that as Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You see, ultimately, it didn't matter which goat was sacrificed and which was sent away. All right? Because both of those goats were likely going to end up dead anyway. The point is that uh, this was yet another opportunity for the people of God to submit and recognize that God is sovereign over everything. That even the lot that is cast to determine which goat goes where, its decision would be made from the Lord. It was his will that would be done. And brothers and sisters, that is something that is still true of us today. Though we are not to cast lots to discern God's will for our lives, we live and we walk and we trust knowing that he orders our steps. Now this is a somewhat important point to consider when it comes to understanding who or what Azazel is. Now kids, let me ask you a question. Is there more than one God? No, some good shaking of the head I'm seeing there. But we know there are demons, right? They exist. Let me ask you, are the demons more powerful than God? No, that's right, definitely not. There is nobody 
who is on the same level playing field as God. He is all-powerful. Now, I say that because, as I mentioned, we're not exactly sure what Azazel is. So Azazel there is simply putting English letters to the underlying Hebrew word. Now, I think, uh, uh, so some people suggest that Azazel could actually be the name of a demon or a false god or something, and that the goat that gets sent away is being sent where it belongs, to the place where the demon is. Uh, Now, I I think this is unlikely, uh, firstly, because so far in the Bible, there's been no mention of demons, the first mention of it is actually in Leviticus chapter seventeen, seven, where the Lord gives an instruction to Israel not to sacrifice to demons. And so you can imagine, if, if the Lord is making it extremely clear that they are not to sacrifice to demons, well, it would be hard to imagine why he would give this ritual on the holiest day of the year uh, that could be so confusing about whether this goat is actually being sacrificed to a demon or not. You see what I'm saying? And so the other likely option of what Azazel actually means, or there are a couple of possibilities, one of them is that it means scapegoat, right? And we uh, still use that term today, and the meaning is basically the same. A scapegoat is somebody who pays for the, the sins of somebody else. They basically take the blame of somebody else, right? Uh, and that, uh, is, again, will make sense when we get to it. But yes, some English translations use that term. Another possibility for Azazel is that it's actually the name for the wilderness or an uninhabited land uh, where the goat actually goes. Well, look, whatever the case, whatever it is that Azazel actually is, the point of it is clear. The goat would be sent away from God's people, away from God's presence, into the place of his judgment. Well, let's see how this elaborate ceremony begins in verse 11. Let's have a read. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. You might remember many chapters ago that the laws for sin offerings found in chapter 4 detail... Uh, what needed to be done if a priest sinned. And of all the various sin offerings that could be given, that was the most serious. Which makes sense. The priest, after all, acted on behalf of the people and he represented them before the Lord. So he needed to be uh, holy. What's the same here on the Day of Atonement? Aaron needed to provide a bull for himself and for his house And you might remember the bull was the costliest of all of the offerings. If a bull can feed 1,500, 2,000 people, you can imagine what it would cost to feed that many people. That is basically the, the, the value of what is being offered up here. So from the outset of this, there is a recognition that everything must be pure and holy. There is not a single person's sin that can be overlooked on this day. After that, we read in verses 12 to 13 that the Aaron was to take a censer full of coals and some incense and put it on the fire in the most holy place. And this created a cloud of incense. And the cloud was to cover the mercy seat that was over the testimony. Now notice the purpose of the cloud of incense in verse 13. It says, so that he may not die. It echoes the language of verse 3, doesn't it? 
where he, he was supposed to do these things so that he does not die. And so it seems pretty clear that the purpose of this incense cloud was to cover the glory of the Lord and thereby keep Aaron from seeing him and dying. Well, after this, he was to take the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the east side of the ark of the, of the, of the mercy seat and also in front of the mercy seat seven times. Once again, seven kids means or represents in the Bible. Oh, anyone? <laughs> Completeness, wholeness, fullness. Now, if you're not sure uh, what the mercy seat was, here is yet another artist's impression. The mercy seat was the cover that went on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Exodus 25 records the instructions for how they were to build the Ark, and that was, it was basically like just this rectangular box covered in gold. And it had, yet again, cherubim statues on the top of it. And inside was the testimony of God. And so the mercy seat, which we see in these verses, was that cover, that bit under the cherubim. Now we call it, it's been translated as mercy seat because the cherubim above, they make it seem like a throne, right? Psalm 99 says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. And it's called a mercy seat because God shows his people his mercy through the atonement. Now some English translations simply call it a lid or a cover. Well, the point is, the splashing and the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat symbolized atonement. It symbolized purification and cleansing of sin. That was its purpose. And verse 15 tells us that the priest basically did the same thing with the goat. So remember, he did the bull for his, him and his house and the goat for the people as a sin offering. And the key to both of these blood-splashing rites is in verse 16. Let's read. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Last week, we saw the Lord give the reason for the uncleanness laws in Leviticus chapter 15, and sorry, 11 to 15. It says in verse 31 that, that they must do this lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Because the tabernacle was right in the middle of the camp of people and they were an unclean people, their sin defiled God's tent. What we see uh, in chapter 15 there is expressed even more clearly here in chapter 16. You see how God, the Lord is saying that it is because of the people's transgressions, it's because of their sins, it's because of their uncleanness that the tent of meeting must be purified. Well, this tells us that even with all of the various offerings and rules of ceremonial purification that we've seen so far in the book of Leviticus, the various offerings, the the sin offering, the guilt offering, the the, um, 
uh, a blank. The, the burnt offering, the, uh, all of the, the seed offering, the grain offering, all of those, as well as the rules that we've seen over the last few weeks for unclean foods and animals and childbirth and skin diseases and bodily discharges, even if they were to obey all of those to make sure they were as clean and as, as consecrated as they could be, they still needed further purification. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, it was exhausting preaching through those chapters. Imagine living them. Have you ever felt like you weren't able to do enough to atone for your sin? Perhaps a friend that you have hurt or offended And no matter what you have done to try and gain their forgiveness, they chose not to forgive you. And that's kind of how it is here. The feeling, the sense of that. The Day of Atonement was still necessary despite all of that. And it was all to serve this purpose. Their sin defiled the tabernacle and it needed to be purified. It reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah said when he saw the Lord who was, as the seraphim declared, holy, holy, holy. What was his response? He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Only that which is holy may enter his presence And live. What a solemn realization. What a day of sober reflection and recognition of their sin and of His holiness. That solemnity is reflected in verse 17. And no one is to enter the tent of meeting as Aaron carries out these rites before the Lord. You can imagine the nerves of the people as they looked on, can't you? Did he do it right? Will he obey all the instructions properly? Or will he be struck dead? Will we be clean? A later Jewish legend said that the priests would actually tie a rope to the leg of the high priest so that they could pull him out in case he died. Have you heard that one? Anyone heard that one? Now, I mention that because I know that I heard that in a sermon once, and perhaps you have too. It's important to recognize that that is actually a legend and is uh, not something that we find anywhere in the Bible or in other reputable sources. But it does highlight the fact that everybody in Israel understood how serious a danger it was for the high priest to enter the most holy place even just once, even just once a year. You can imagine how they would have treated the Day of Atonement with great fear and awe of God. As followers of Christ in the New Covenant, we do not have annual ceremonies like this. And God hasn't given us any to celebrate. But surely there is a need for us to continue to remind ourselves of it. 
certainly at least part of our gathering each week, ought to capture this sense of awe of who God is. Of how significant it is that we are actually able to enter in behind the veil. It ought to be captured in our prayers, in our singing, and in all that we do. And there's no prescription on how we do that in the Bible, but I hope that we may continue to grow in standing in awe of our holy God as a people whenever we come together as his church to never be flippant, to never treat casually the fact that we are actually able to come before him and not be struck dead. In verse 18, the high priest then does the same with the altar. He does the same blood splashing rite to ensure that the key items in the tent of meeting are purified. And then verse 19 finishes this section with essentially a repeat of the purpose that we saw in verse 16 with some extra language. He says, And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. The blood of the bull and the blood of the goat was ceremonially atoned for the sin of the people and the sin of the priests. It cleansed the tent of meeting from the uncleanness of the people. But the message of the day of atonement made it even clearer with the second goat, And that brings us to our second point, sin taken away. Sometimes when changing one of my youngest boy's nappies or undies, as it were, for the one being toilet trained, uh, I get a bit of poo on my fingers. I don't know about you, but poo is gross and I hate it. Pretty sure most people do. So I wash my hands as soon as I can. But if I just left their soiled nappy or pair of undies exposed on the floor or on the change table or wherever it may be, then it's only going to be a matter of time before I or someone else gets poo on them. And also, especially if it's one of the younger boys, it's only a matter of time before the whole house will get poo. On it. Well, this next section is a, a little bit like that. Let's read from verse 20. And when he has made an end of, the, of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Well, the first goat is slain and its blood is used to atone for the people so that the tent of meeting could be purified from their sin. Here, the goat has all the sins of the people confessed over it and it is sent away into the wilderness. 
Now, the man who is in readiness likely had the job of making sure that the goat did not come back. Now, centuries later, the, the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish tradition that was written down, uh, recorded that what would happen in this rite is that the man who is in readiness would push the goat off a mountain to make sure that it died. Now, that's not in our chapter, of course. Uh, verse 22 just says that the goat is to go free in the wilderness. But perhaps the practice evolved into this, which would just simply emphasize the point that they did not want the goat coming back. Its place with, with its sin, with all the sin of the nation now being confessed over it is not amongst the people. It is now amongst in the wilderness. That is where it belongs. So of course it makes sense that you don't want this goat to come back. You want to get that thing as far away as possible, right? Like a dirty, full nappy. You want to just chuck it into the bin and never see it again. Of course, this is far more serious than a a nappy because it it bears the iniquity and the sin of all of the people. Now, it's worth noting here that the two goats served actually a united purpose expressed in different ways. If you look back in verse 5, it says, uh, two male goats for a sin offering. You notice how it, it talks about both goats being given for one offering. Now, this, this ritual of sending the goat away into the wilderness, it only happened on this day. You won't find any other instructions or laws about anything like this in the rest of the Bible. There is no offering like it anywhere else. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, this is what would happen, and its purpose is the same as that of a regular sin offering. It is to atone for sin. Both goats deal with the sin of the people. And notice the directions of the two goats. They both began at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The first goat is sacrificed and its blood is brought into the most holy place. That is a westward direction, a direction back towards Eden. And it is by the blood of that goat that the high priest is welcomed in and the sin of the people is atoned for. It's purified so that he can enter the most holy place. The second goat, having had the sin of the people confessed over it, is then sent east Remember, that is away from the entrance to the tent of meeting, away from the entrance to the Garden of Eden, away from Eden. And so the second goat is being sent away from the presence of God, away from the tent of meeting and into the wilderness. It is cast out into the place of chaos and death, just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden into the same place. The goat bearing the sins of the nation is getting the treatment that sin deserves. It is going to the place where it belongs. And notice something incredible in these verses. Look at how the Lord makes it clear in verses 21 and 22 that it is all their sins. All of them. Brothers and sisters, this anticipates and foreshadows the wonderful, great truth of the gospel. 
take heart and take comfort in this. Jesus did not take only some of your sin. He did not only get you halfway there so that you could get yourself the rest of the way there. He did not only take on the worst of your sin. His blood has washed away all your sin. All of it. As 1 John 1, 7 reminds us, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If you're somebody who is more prone to seeing your sin as overwhelmingly great, like you've got blood on your hands and you can't scrub it off, remember that your Savior is greater Jesus didn't half do the job. He did it fully. The two goats for the sin offering on the Day of Atonement were shadows of the greater removal of all our sin that would come in him. Praise God. Well, in verses 23 to 28, we have further instructions for ceremonial cleanness that must be obeyed by Aaron and the man who led the goat into the wilderness. They had to make themselves ceremonially clean again, which makes sense. Aaron had to remove his linen garments and bathe in water and then offer the burnt offering for himself and for the people. As we saw in chapter 1, this offering was one of total surrender Remember, everything got burnt up, hence the name. But it was also one of atonement. It was a fitting offering to give at the end of the entire ceremony. Everything about this ritual underscored the importance of consecration, total consecration of the people of Israel to the Lord. And it also declared the atonement of their sin. Well, up until this point, the only person involved in the whole day was Aaron, or the chief priest, as well as the man who pushed the goat off the cliff. What were the people of Israel doing at this time? Well, that brings us to our final point. Salvation remembered forever. Now, kids, have any of you ever been to an Anzac Day service? Anyone? Yeah, oh, there's some nods. Yeah. Well, if you haven't, one of the things that happens, I suspect that perhaps one of the, some of the reasons some of you haven't is the same reason that none of our kids have. It's like ridiculously early in the morning. They call it a dawn service for a reason. It's a dawn, and you have to get there before dawn. But if you haven't, one of the things that happens is a minute of silence. And the purpose of the minute of silence is to silently reflect on the Australian soldiers who gave their lives in past wars. You see, war and loss, is, and loss of life is a tragic thing. And so the purpose of the silence is to be reminded of that fact. That's why the tag for Anzac Day is lest we forget. 
We never want to forget the horrors of war. Well, that captures the meaning of solemn. I've mentioned a few times that this Day of Atonement was a solemn and serious day for the nation of Israel. And once a year, they were to be reminded of their sin and they would need to see what it takes for all of it to be atoned. Aaron or whoever the high priest was would go through all of these ceremonies that we just looked at. But the people of Israel had their own role to play in remembering it too. So let's read from verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. Notice a few things in this passage. Firstly, uh, the word afflict there was used to express humbling themselves, which was normally done through fasting and prayer. And they were also to do no work, which was something they did every Sabbath. And so verse 31, which says a Sabbath of solemn rest, literally a Sabbath of Sabbaths in Hebrew, they were told to do this. And again, recognizing the solemnity of the day. This was a day for coming humbly before the Lord. But notice that this is not the only purpose of the day. They are not only to recognize the solemnity of their sin and the necessary uh, blood that needs to be spilled in order for it to be atoned for. Just look at how many times the word atonement is mentioned in these last few verses. And look at the recipients of that atonement. Verse 33 mentions the holy sanctuary, the tent of meeting, and the altar. But every other time the word is used in these last verses, it is used in reference to the priests or the people being cleansed of their sin. Well, how does, how does the tent of meeting get atoned for? How is it cleansed and purified of their sin? By having the people's sin atoned for, purified and cleansed. Sin is so serious that the Day of Atonement was required, but the Day of Atonement also rang an amazing note of God's steadfast love and mercy to his people. You can hear that cry, their sins, all of them, every single one was atoned for. What a glorious truth, what a wonderful thing to remember and to celebrate and praise God for. Once again, something that ought to be true of us and our gatherings every time we meet. 
And finally, notice how three times the commandment, it is a statute forever, is mentioned. Or perhaps you might be asking, how can this be a statute forever if the nation of Israel was destroyed and the temple, which would eventually replace the tent of meeting, was also destroyed? If tabernacle worship, if the ark, if all of those things were gone, how could this be something that lasts forever? Well, it can because the Day of Atonement anticipated and was a shadow of the true and final Day of Atonement. We're going to read about it in Hebrews chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn there. And let me encourage you to read all of chapters 9 and 10 and to study them as they pick up so much language and ideas and and themes and types from the book of Leviticus. We obviously won't have time to go through all all of both of those chapters, but I encourage you to spend good time doing that, seeing as we have just spent several months looking at the book. Now, I'm going to read sections from chapters 9 and 10 slowly, and I'm not going to give much commentary. Having just worked through our way through chapter 16, I hope most of this will pop out to you. But I will make some comments and finish with some. So let's read from uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You notice the author of Hebrews has accurately summarized all of that and how it works. And notice also how he mentions the unintentional sins of the people. You might remember that uh, the people had to bring a sin or a guilt offering whenever they became aware of certain sins. You remember that? When he's done this thing and when he becomes aware of it, that is when he brings the sin or the guilt offering. And so that means there were certainly sins that they were not aware of. And so at the very least, the Day of Atonement must have covered these sins. The very ones that they were not aware of that they did not bring any uh, offering for. Unintentional ones. Well, praise God, that is still true today. Even when you sin and even when you are not conscious of the fact that you have. Even when you hurt people and you are unloving towards them without intending to be. I'm sure we all have experiences of that. God forgives you of it. All our sins. All our transgressions. Even unintentional ones. 
Let's keep reading from verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How is it a statute forever? Because Christ has done it by securing an eternal redemption, a once-for-all atonement for sin. Hallelujah! I'm sure that's what Evie was just saying, right? Hallelujah, praise God. An eternal redemption. Brothers and sisters, we can rejoice because that is what we have in Christ. And friends, if you do not know the salvation found in Jesus, he calls you to turn and receive atonement for your sin. Incredibly, in the new covenant in Christ, we receive it today by turning from our sin and putting our faith in Jesus. His once-for-all sacrifice for us. He did that for us. He was the one who bore our sin outside the city. He was the one who received the penalty of our sin in the wilderness. He was the great high priest who entered the most holy place on our behalf so that we might see a holy God and not die. He was the one whose blood was shed, perfectly pure, so that our sins could be cleansed. When we turn to him, he invites us to a living faith, a confidence before God, an ability to come before his throne Boldly, not with fear and trembling, worrying whether we've done enough, worrying whether our sin has been cleansed or forgiven or not, because we know that he has done it. We can put our faith and our trust in his finished, complete and perfect work. Let's finish with verses 19 to 22 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Christ, we have received an atonement that has washed us clean forever. May we rejoice in that all our days.